Coming to you from the Outer Mission, this is Monkey Block, a storytelling podcast focused on San Francisco's golden past, 1849 through 1906. I'm your host, Girlina. The stories are closely based on newspapers of the time, historical books, and journals. Disclaimer, I do my best to research and share the real stories, extracting legends or calling them out. Now, let's go back in time. Welcome back, dear listeners, and welcome any first-time listeners. This is a podcast where I discuss forgotten or lesser-known early San Francisco history. In previous episodes, I've mentioned the importance of Alta California's Yerba Buena Cove to the overall commerce in the District of San Francisco, consisting of the local rancheros, the mission, and the local inhabitants. The cove was advantageous for being a year-round protected spot for mooring, much better than the originally established Presidio of San Francisco. The foreigner-friendly atmosphere additionally propelled the whaling and merchant commerce, along with the easy-living lifestyle of the Californios, who supported smuggling or non-payment of duties, as William Heath Davis Jr. called it. My episodes so far have focused on the business benefit of Yerba Buena Cove because, well, that's the easiest information to find, but not the geography of the shoreline and cove or the history prior to the landfill of 1851 and 1853. I wanted to understand how the different occupants of San Francisco related to the same land. Some information is harder to find, and sometimes that information is under your nose, hiding in plain sight, and sometimes it's just under your feet. In today's episode, I researched the original shoreline of Yerba Buena, and as part of doing research on a topic, I always come across interesting information, but when it's not on topic for that episode, I leave it out. But this isn't one of those times. We're both along for the ride on this one. Are you ready? Here we go. Today's episode is largely based on Down by the Bay, San Francisco's History Between the Tides by historian Matthew Morse Booker. When it came to the tidelands and shoreline, Mexico followed Spanish law that followed Roman law by retaining the area between high and low tide as sovereign property of the nation. Per Mexican law, Pueblo land could only be granted to full-time residents and only by the alcaldes, that's a mayor, or other Pueblo council. Residents could not own multiple lots and were required to improve the land. Once someone was granted land, the land grantees could not sell their land, ensuring that land grants would be inherited, and that was intentional to create social and legal stability. The Pueblo de Arbabuena land grants were small. They were 50 to 100 vada lots, and that's about 138 to 275 feet, and always 200 vadas, that's 500 feet, from the shoreline. And that's why the earliest homes were built up the hill from the original Yerba Buena Cove shoreline. 
Torrential grants were permitted in thousands of acres. Urban versus country life dictated the size of land grants. You need more land to raise and feed cattle, so rancho grants were larger than Pueblo grants. I never thought about that, but that makes a lot of sense. To Californios, the Yerba Buena Tidelands and mudflats were complicated landscape. The original waterfront of San Francisco consisted of salt marshes and mudflats and was physically and legally unstable land, since you couldn't easily build there for a few reasons. But Americans, even prior to their takeover in 1846, knew this complicated land held opportunity. While the United States saw opportunity in the Yerba Buena Cove, Mexico didn't relate to the shoreline in the same way. The extremely successful hide and tallow business focused on grazing land and ranchos, so why wouldn't they continue to focus on what was clearly working? The Yerba Buena Cove sat empty as anything more than a place to dock your ships. To Californios, Pueblo land was not as valuable as ranch land when raising cattle was proving to be lucrative, hence the large ranchos in the district of San Francisco area, as opposed to the few permanent households in the actual Pueblo de Yerba Buena. There were a total of 64 land-grant applications in the district of San Francisco before 1846, which encompassed the entire area surrounding the Mission San Francisco de Assis, current-day Daly City, Colma, San Bruno, Pacifica, Half Moon Bay, Brisbane, South San Francisco, San Mateo, and I'm sure I'm leaving others out. Californios believed greater population would drive up the price of beef and wheat. So focus on ranchos and your literal cash cows in the form of hide and tallow. The shoreline could only produce shellfish, which was in abundance everywhere in the bay, so that couldn't easily be monetized, which made the shoreline dead space. The land around Yerba Buena Cove consisted of miserable sand dunes and sand hills from all the wind. You couldn't raise cattle or maintain a farm near the cove. Plus, Mexico didn't allow for development 200 vados from the shoreline, even if they wanted to build there. Interestingly, it's Englishman Richardson who realized existing Yerba Buena Cove's whaling and merchant commerce could be better developed for financial gain if there was a pueblo to support the already existing port for the incoming ships from Boston and England in the form of maybe hotels, stores, and bars. In 1835, Francisco de Haro, working directly with Richardson, laid out the Pueblo de Yerba Buena, reserving 200 vadas from the water's edge, maintaining the tidelands along the shoreline exclusively for Mexican federal use. Yerba Buena becomes a pueblo and a port. And that's how the shoreline remained until the 1840s, when the Americans started pressuring Mexico for land closer to the shore. Hold on to that point. Mexicans and Californios saw the Tidelands as half-empty, while other countries saw the same Tidelands as half-full. While land speculation in the form of ranchos and grazing land was not a new concept to Mexico's Alta California, 
real estate development was an American-introduced concept. The United States had its eye on Yerba Buena prior to the actual occupation of 1846, actually as early as 1835. U.S. President Andrew Jackson in 1835 is said to have tried to purchase the newly established Pueblo de Yerba Buena for $5 million. I'm saying it's said because I can't confidently support that claim. This next point is interesting. On the opposite side of the continent, New York City and Boston had experienced a similar waterfront situation. They found tidelands difficult to legislate because they're part water and part land. Depending on the tide, the boundaries changed, making this area just as physically as it was legally unstable. That should sound familiar. The East Coast Tidelands were eventually sold as water lots, and New York and Boston filled the Tidelands, creating the most valuable real estate in the port districts. This was based on the 17th century concept of gained ground by extending wharves into shallow tides and then filling in between the wharves with garbage, building debris, and other waste. Uh Aha! In 1846, California is now American territory, and the development of New York City and Boston shorelines informed how Yerba Buena would grant Tideland ownership. And that's when we start seeing buildings constructed on wooden poles pushed deep into the mudflats and those very short wharves built from the shoreline, just like New York and Boston. They literally made land from the sea. One country's dead space became another country's phenomenal opportunity. The buildings during high tide looked like they were built over water, which was a beautiful sight. But at low tide, you could see and smell the land under the wharves. And that's before sand, garbage, and rubble filled in the shoreline and underneath the wharves. There's a reason this sounds very familiar. I imagine current-day Bodega Bay looks a lot like Yerba Buena and San Francisco of 1846. For my non-local listeners, hello Germany, UK, Ukraine, Japan, Bodega Bay is a rocky, shallow cove 40 miles north of San Francisco and was and still is a fishing community built on the waterfront with short wharves, just like Yerba Buena once had. Unrelated but cute, Bodega Bay refers to themselves as a drinking community with a fishing problem. I'm skipping forward a bit in my timeline to relay an interesting fact. After the U.S. takeover, between 1846 and 1848, in two years, San Francisco's government sold 780 land and water lots compared to Mexico's 68 land grants in 26 years. But something is missing from the shoreline's story. The United States saw opportunity in the shoreline. Mexico didn't see the same opportunity. And the Spaniards incorrectly believed the Presidio would make a great landing spot. But before the Americans, the Mexicans, and the Spaniards, there was a community who viewed land and shoreline management very differently. Let's go way back to a time when what we now call the city and county of San Francisco was locally called 
Yalamu. That's the name for the people and the village before it was Yerba Buena or San Francisco. Yolamu is part of the Ramai Tushaloni area, which is the San Francisco Peninsula region. The Yolamu people survived for millennia on what the bay could provide, occupying the area between 10,000 and 15,000 years ago. So suddenly the 1830s don't sound that long ago. Between controlled fires and expert knowledge of the seasons, plants, and animals, the Yolamu thrived. The shoreline was extremely important to their survival. They moved their living location based on season and preserved the shoreline as if their lives depended on it. The Yalamu and Al Aloni didn't want or try to dominate the land. You worked to protect the land because the land kept you alive. They worked in unison with land and nature, respecting their place in the bigger picture. They were San Francisco's first environmentalists and preservationists. The shoreline, marshes, ocean, and land provided more than enough for survival, and knowing how to preserve it took knowledge. The way they treated the land left the shoreline in pristine condition when the Spanish arrived and, well, when they began their series of domineering agendas. The bay's bounty was so rich that there were 425 recorded shell mounds in the Ramaytush Ohlone area. And the shell mounds were typically located near open water, shorelines, and marshes. Hold on to that. Shell mounds are large assemblages of clam, mussel, abalone, oyster, other seashells, soil, rock, animal, human bones, and personal belongings. The shorelines were extremely important land to the Ohlone, but for different reasons than the urban developers of San Francisco, New York City, and Boston. The shell mounds located along the bay and shoreline were sacred burial sites where you interred your ancestors with that which maintained your life. Shell mounds were also territorial landmarks, ceremonial gathering places, and where villages were built. Male skeletons were sometimes buried with stone pipes and weapons, females sometimes buried with mortars and pestles. Baskets, charms, beads were also buried in the shell mounds. Large amounts of ash were found as well, and that was part of cremations, which was customary when people passed on. In 1909, American archaeologist Nels Nelson, as part of his archaeological survey, incorrectly concluded that shell mounds were refuge dump sites. And that's despite finding human remains in every shell mound he studied. Nelson is who mapped the 425 shell mounds for posterity. I'll give him credit for that. But his decision to say that these were dump sites, while having found what was clearly a burial site, was incorrect at best and tone deaf at worst. Alfred Krober, the father of California Indian anthropology, incorrectly and tragically wrote, by the way, Costanoan is an outdated reference for Ohlone. The Costanoan group is extinct so far as all practical purposes are concerned. A few scattered individuals survive whose parents were attached to Mission San Jose, San Juan Batista, and San Carlos, 
but they are of mixed tribal ancestry and live almost lost among other Indians or obscure Mexicans. Krober, like Nelson, was also incorrect. What Nelson didn't understand was how the Ohlone related to the land, which is, creator made us of the land, the land is of us, and we return to the land. You buried your ancestors at Shell Mounds. These weren't dump sites. And Krober didn't realize surviving Ohlone went into hiding in plain sight by saying they were Mexican for political safety and social reasons. For an extended time in the United States, it was dangerous to say you were Indian, so during census data collection, you said you were Mexican, which was really easy to do if you hid behind the Hispanicized name your grandmother's grandmother was given at a mission. I'm being generous by giving Krober that reason for why he didn't know better. Side note, it was illegal until 1978 to practice Native religion in the United States. The Shell Mounds being dump sites and the Ohlone being extinct are both incorrect and had and still have lasting consequences. People still speak about Shell Mounds as kitchen dumps and the Ohlone in the past tense as if they were extinct. Tragically, you can't be federally recognized if you are considered extinct. Larger shell mounds took thousands of years to create. The largest and best-known shell mound in Northern California was just over the Bay Bridge in Emeryville, and it was three stories high and three and a half football fields in diameter. It was large and was. When you are at the Emeryville Bay Street Shopping Center or passing Emeryville on the highway, you are walking on or driving by Northern California's largest sacred burial site. Thousands of people every day drive over the Bay Bridge, passing an important sacred location in early California history. But that large shell mound has now been flattened to make a shopping area and a parking lot and an Ikea and apartment buildings. The rest of what I'm about to say was unknown to me, As a person who has lived here my entire life and takes interest in early San Francisco history, I found a blind spot in my San Francisco knowledge that was hard to realize once I saw it. I actually had to take a few days to process my lack of knowledge. Mia culpa in three, two, one. Speaking of shell mounds, there were 18 shell mound burial sites in just San Francisco. Candlestick Point, adjacent to the Cow Palace, current-day Yerba Buena Gardens, Mission Creek near the ballpark, Hunter's Point, Bayview by Islas Creek, and near the Mission San Francisco the Assis. Three smaller shell mounds were found near Fort Mason, south of Market, Civic Center Bart, and the Lake Merced area. There were 50 village locations just in San Francisco where Ohlone artifacts have been discovered. This includes the 18 shell mound burial sites. Now recall, the Yalamu moved around within San Francisco based on seasons. And somehow all of this missed my research radar until today. A few additional locations are Howard, Dahama, Stevenson, Carroll, New Montgomery Streets, the corner of Fifth and Market, and the Moscone Center. 
That information was from the Association Engineering Geologists' Geology of the Cities of the World by Bartow, Sullivan, Motzer, Johnson. I have some issues with the antiquated research they used to describe shell mounds without acknowledging newer accurate research, but I do have a link to their study. 425 shell mounds in the area. 18 are in San Francisco. And before today, I can only tell you about the Emeryville shell mound. This is my embarrassing blind spot. Most of the 425 Bay Area shell mounds no longer exist. Among the reasons those coveted water lots were located where the majority of shell mounds were created, typically near open water along the shoreline. But some shell mounds were washed away, and some are now underwater. The sea level has risen over the past 10 to 15,000 years, and this applies to all of the Bay Area as well as San Francisco. Matthew Morse Booker, in his book, states, The San Francisco Bay is the largest and most important estuary on North America's Pacific coast. 10% of the original 90,000 acres of the original marshes are still apparent. Only 10%. It's covered over, but the original marshes have a way of resurfacing. The earthquakes of 1906 and 1989, they reminded us of what came before the freeways, shopping centers, financial districts, buildings, homes, and streets. I described the reserved shoreline for Mexican federal use and America's urban development plan for Yerba Buena's waterfront and tidelands, and now I'm ending with the Ohlone use of the shoreline and land. The collective we have, for various reasons, historically silenced the Alamu in San Francisco and the Ohlone of all of the San Francisco Bay Area after literally covering it up with land made from sea. I knew all these three facets in differing detail, but when I looked at them side by side for the first time, I questioned what I thought I knew and, frankly, my unconscious bias in not learning about the cultural aspects of the Alamu where I live. I'm closing with land acknowledgement, but it's more than land acknowledgement. It's historical acknowledgement. We can't change the past, but we can recognize those who came before us, especially when their history has been silenced, covered, built over, washed away. We aren't really guests on Ohlone land. Guests are invited, and then they leave. Settler is a better description for what we are, so I'll stop using guest in this reference. If you agree you are on Ohlone land, then what does it mean when you say you are from here? After this episode's research, I'll be more sensitive by saying I grew up here versus I am from here. And what does it mean? to say you are native Californian. Are you, though? We have native Californians who can trace their ancestry back to the original inhabitants of the state. I won't be using that phrase anymore. Again, my blind spot. And speaking of being historically silenced, the Ramaytush ask that you discuss them in the present tense. Krober was wrong. They still exist, despite everything. You can visit the Association for Ramaytush Ohlone at www.ramaytush.org, which I am citing with Dr. Cordero's permission. Ramaytush, R-A-M-A-Y-T-U-S-H, 
A-R-T-R-A-C-T-I-V-E-Y-T-U-S-H. You could sincerely believe you see the big picture, but blind spots could be hiding history underneath your feet. San Francisco has lots of history you can't see or easily find. I've unknowingly walked on San Francisco shell mounds and sacred burial sites without acknowledgement. I won't make excuses for why I didn't previously know more about this topic because not a single one of my reasons are valid. I challenge you, dear listener, to learn about the ancestral land where you live and the culture of the original inhabitants. If you don't know how the original inhabitants lived, you could also be walking over sacred burial sites without knowing it. We can't change the past, but we can acknowledge those who came before us. No matter how much you think you know, there's always more to learn. I hope this episode provides you with new insight, knowledge, and maybe an appreciation for San Francisco's shoreline and, I don't know, a new way to consider some things. If you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with just one like-minded friend and help spread the word. Thank you for listening. This is Monkey Block. Retelling forgotten stories from San Francisco's golden past. <laughs>